Okay, can everybody at the back hear me? I'm normally really, thank you, I'm normally really loud, but I'm feeling quite quiet and contemplative today. So I blame that on the morning. My brain's been um, working a great deal. So um, what is engagement? And I want to pick up, um, obviously one has to pull out a word cloud, don't they, for something like this. But I want to pull out on those three definitions that we heard about this morning. Um, time and energy that a student puts in improving all their, their motivation to learn and engaged learning behaviour, um, and being partners in um, the quality assurance and enhancement within our institutions. Now, for me, these aren't different things because I'd put an overarching um, definition on engagement in terms of the way that I perceive it as a psychologist, um, and that is co-creators of the learning environment they experience. Um, so we might produce learning opportunities, but the environment they experience is down to their actions, their co-creation with us. So for me, that's what engagement is. And I, I suppose I'll pick up on that definition as we go through. I, again, as a psychologist, I would be very much focusing um, when I'm thinking about engagement as the learner's salient identity. What is the psychological contract of student? Is it to be passive receiver or is it to be an active, engaged co-creator? And I think for me, by giving that overarching definition, I think that's potentially one of the ways in which we can protect ourselves from some of the very negative potential outcomes of the marketisation of higher education. And we've been doing some research on this, which I'm going to talk about various different bits of research we've been doing but I'll end up by just telling you a little bit about our learning game project that we're leading at Portsmouth. Um, one of my colleagues, Stephanie Sonnenberg, has done some really interesting work on this idea of student identity as passive or active. And so what she's done is she's tweaked student identity in, a, in an experimental study. We've sim simply given students two paragraphs about being a university student. They're, ident they're only about this long, and they're identical in wording, except... One paragraph uses the word partner, and the other paragraph uses the word customer. Um, and then what we do is we put students in different groups, we give them these different paragraphs, and then we get them to do an NSS, essentially. And what do you think happens to their satisfaction? Yeah. Significantly lower when you frame them as customer. And that's because they, um, and so there's a lovely theoretical underpinning to this, and we did some interviews with them as well. So why might that happen? Because as soon as you frame them with a salient identity as customer, you are making, they are seeing themselves as passive receivers. They're waiting for you to give. As soon as they are partner, they are active co-creators, and they are actually questioning what they're doing to get and, and create with you. So they're looking at the opportunities, they're suddenly starting to talk about the opportunities that were on offer that they didn't engage with. Well, there was this great seminar, but I didn't go. Whereas when their customer, in the interviews, they're talking about, well, there were no opportunities to talk to my colleagues. Yes, there were, but you didn't go. But their experience is simply the passive one. Well, I, I didn't experience any. It doesn't matter that it, it was about my lack of engagement with that. So for me, this overarching partnership, co-creator of the learning experience is a really, really critical way to frame engagement because it could be a great protecting factor as we move into a push to a marketisation of higher education. 
I'm going back, way, 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 way back, because to me, theory matters. Um, so we've got the wonderful UCARES, um, we've got lots and lots of tools we use institutionally, our unit assessment tools, the National Student Survey, but for me, I want to go back to before we got very, very applied and start talking about some of the theory. And so I'm going back to Paul Ramsden's Entwistle's approaches to studying because my predominant work in higher education research was actually around the 90s and the early 2000s. So um, I've actually only just come back into it having had time out looking at children's learning for many years and you'll see that element come back in again. And I want to go back to these roots because we didn't talk about engagement, we were talking about approaches to studying in these periods. We were actually looking at the goals and the cognitive processes of the learner using the approaches to studying tools. Um, and obviously you referred to this in terms of the European, Australian, British um, alliances that we had with Biggs, with Ram Ramsden, Gibbs, etc. At Seljo, to name many. And actually there are elements in here, we know that, that Paul Ramsden has influenced the engagement agenda quite a lot, so it's not surprising that there are elements here that very much play to the idea of engagement if we go back to this, this cloud, if we were to all brainstorm what we thought engagement might be. Um, so in the meaning orientation, I'll refer to it as um, deep learning, just to um, be quick, you've got the active questioning in learning. You've got the interesting, interest in learning for learning's sake, so that curiosity, I really want to know. And then in the surface um, approaches to learning, reproducing orientation, we've probably got some of the opposites coming out, relying on staff to define the learning task and just passively learning in the way in which it's given to you. Uh, we've got syllabus boundness that, that comes out in, some of, in, in the third strategic um, element. Now, interestingly, I'm going to talk about the assist, which is one of the latest versions of this tool, um, which actually now, instead of talking about a surface approach, talks about an apathetic surface approach. And you'll see a lot more of the elements in here that we would recognise as a serious disenchantment. So, what those two areas don't define is what we might describe as a very serious lack of engagement, a total disengagement. Decky and Ryan, the A-motivated student... So they first coined this term in the 80s. Um, this is a student without any goals, um, with a cognitive process that says, I'm helpless, I can't do anything to make this different. So not only can I not do it any better in that essay, and therefore there's no point in me engaging, I can't do anything to change this institution, there's no point in me engaging. So very, very amotivated, and this for me... Uh, they're not even sure why they're here. They're here because it's a means to an end, and we've seen this also um, in, in the work of other researchers. With We, we see about 75% of students quite often there as a means to an end because of the mass higher education system we have now. You've got to go to university to do anything. Um, so we've got a lot of students here because they have to be here, not because they have any sense of why they're there. Um, but really interesting from a psychological perspective is they perceive themselves as incompetent. They have a very, very low, what I will define later as self-efficacy. Now, is it them or is it us? And this is something you started to touch on, Alex, this morning, which is it them or is it us? And this, as, as a, um, I'm currently the head of psychology, about to be the dean of science, this is what my staff will sit and say. Well, it's them, it's not us. And you have to get into that debate to explore those issues and start to unravel this. Well, of course, we've got the course perceptions questionnaire, which shows us that there are things that we can do. We may not have caused it, but it is to some degree within our power to change it. 
um, we know the high correlations between these elements. And I've taken out, I've only included the CPQ elements that touched on the disenchantment bits that I was really interested in, or, or the engagement bits that I was really interested in. But of course, course perceptions were never meant to just be a, they're not a measure of what we do, they're a measure of what the student sees and thinks that we do. So, of course, we go way back to Arnold and Flaney, they say, student comes in with a certain approach to studying, which is already disenchanted, um, is also engaged or disengaged already, that affects what they see on offer, which affects their selection of a new learning approach, new goals, new cognitive processes, which affects their performance. This is lovely. This got us a bit further at that stage. But right now, today, this is also incredibly simplistic. And I want to unravel that a bit later. Um, interestingly, we had researchers saying and the, how they come in is all, all to do with their school experiences. I would argue it's not all to do with their school experiences. Um, and I will show you why in a moment. In part, it may well be to a degree, but there's a lot more going on that's been overlooked and that it tends to be a surface approach that they come in with, which is very interesting. And the other interesting thing related to the debate that we had this morning is that surface approaches or deep approaches do not necessarily lead to the outcomes that you'd expect. So somebody, so there's a, a great contentious debate in the literature where some people show that um, some deep approaches lead to better academic outcomes and surface approaches lead to worse academic outcomes. There are many, many researchers who've shown there is absolutely no systematic relationship whatsoever. And there are also a few researchers now that show that a surface approach might actually do you better in some higher education systems. So there's a massive debate we can have around that also. Um, this is data from a paper that I'm just preparing at the moment for submission. So I was, I was quite frustrated with the approaches to studying inventory because um, I come from a discipline where um, self-efficacy is very important. I'll explain self-efficacy in a moment. But self-efficacy is subject-specific. It's task-specific. Um, and when Entwistle and Ramsden designed the approaches to studying inventory, they started off with qualitative research around reading tasks. And they then made this leap of faith to a generic approach to studying, and that frustrated the hell out of me. So I went in doing a piece of research to say, right, okay, let's actually develop an equivalent psychometric tool to measure approaches in essay writing. And I started with lots of qualitative data around how students um, produced essays. And there were two things that I was essentially thinking I would demonstrate. One was that the same concepts wouldn't come out. Um, wouldn't be applicable to a set task. And the other was that any that were similar wouldn't move and change in the same way as a generic approach would. I was actually out to demonstrate there really wasn't such a thing as a generic approach to studying. Um, the long and the short is, there was. So, so actually, I, I very much disproved what I thought. I, I, I very much had to reject my hypotheses. But this is some interesting data based on the tool um, we have a bit of a, a joke in, in my department where whenever we develop a psychometric tool, and that's one of the things we do a lot of because um, our background is in psychometrics, um, we have to give them really, really interesting um, sort of acronyms. So this one had to, of course, be the EWOC. Um, and we've also got a new one with children, which, which is um, YOLO. You know, you only live once. So, so we have to come up with really interesting. So we've got the EWOC. One of the scales on there is disenchantment. 
Um, and this is very similar to Entwistle and Ramsden's apathetic surface approach, um, apathetic reproducing orientation. So, and actually what we did was I, I followed, this is longitudinal data, not cross-sectional data, and I followed the students over the course of their degree, but we also did look at quite a few demographics. Um, this is just one I want to show you because I want to show you that what the student comes in with in terms of their characteristics will affect the journey that they're on, which supports that um, model, Arnold and Flames model that we were looking at, but I'm going to go on to show you how it's a lot more complex than that. So if you actually see in the first year, there's actually no significant difference um, between the two younger age groups um, in, in, the, in the first year of degree, in level four of study. Um, and actually, um, they become significantly different, but the journey isn't, they're not significantly lower. Um, they are, there's a trend for them to get more disenchanted, but it's not a significant um, move in the data. But actually, interestingly, these guys are all on the same, they're, they're on similar educational experiences, but these guys are having a complete transformation through the higher education process. They actually start incredibly disenchanted and just actually get better and better and better. So there's something very much more complex about that journey, um, it, which is really quite interesting. So there's lots and lots of demographics we need to look at. So um, I'm, I can't talk about them all, um, but the ones that we are going to be looking at in our Learning Game project so is ethnicity, um, SES, um, gender, age group on entry, and incoming UCAS points or equivalent to UCAS points. So those are the ones we're going to be looking at. But also, we want to try and understand what might... So we need a theoretical underpinning to try and understand when we see our data... Um, on the Learning Game project, we want to understand theoretically why we might see certain patterns in the data. So when we get all the data, we're going to be answering a lot of the what questions, but we need that theoretical underpinning to answer the why questions. So the theoretical underpinning, that we have several um, that theories that, that we're looking at, and the tools have been designed to measure these. Um, two that I'm not going to mention is stereotype threat, um, which is... If you hold a protected characteristic, so, so for all the guys in the room, um, in our society, you can't multitask. Okay, there's a lovely stereotype about your lack of ability to multitask. Um, for my gender, there's a lovely stereotype threat around my inability to parallel park. Or worse, my inability to be a scientist. Now, um, what we know, there's numerous studies, but I'll tell you a very, very memorable one is if you go into, um, if I put a load of males and females into a room and I give them a mass test, then I make the females saliently female. And the way that this was done in one very interesting study is they put the females in bikinis. Back they go into the room and they redo the mass test and the females do substantially worse than their baseline score. And this is because of stereotype threat. But they're in bikinis, they're cold, of course they're going to do worse. They actually did a literacy test as well and they didn't do substantially worse on the literacy test. So you make... A, one of your characteristics, a salient part of your identity at that moment in time, and the stereotypes related to that identity will affect your performance. Um, so that's one thing we're looking at. We're also looking at cognitive biases and heuristics. Specifically, we're looking at false consensus, which is um, we make very quick judgments. So I'll walk into this room and I will look at you all and I will decide, am I one of you? Am I like you? Or am I, am I unique from you guys? Or am I, can I see a consensus? Am I just like you guys? And we know that this happens in relation to SES, in that students, and I've um, done two studies, 
um, on this that are published, that actually students that come in with lower SES levels, um, they literally come into higher education and they have a very negative false uniqueness. And they make judgments about their ability on the basis of that um, which are not true to their actual ability. So we've given them attainment tests. We've said, judge where you, where you will perform compared to others on your degree. And all of the working class kids, um, if I can use that as a short, as a proxy, all of the working class kids say, um, you know, I'm not as good as everybody else. And their attainment is actually higher. All of the middle class kids say, yeah, I'm, I'm quite a lot better than everybody else. And their attainment is actually lower. Now, your judgment about your ability is very heavily tied to a self-theory called um, self-efficacy. Your own judgment about your ability to do something, and that changes your behaviour in a learning environment. So that particular effect, that false consensus effect, that the false uniqueness effect that we found is really critical, and it could help us to understand the mechanism by which students um, are actually doing less well when they come from certain backgrounds. Implicit theories. Now, this comes from the world of child learning, and this is what I've brought from studies I'm doing currently into the higher education work. And I'm going to explain what that is in a wee mo. So, self-theories. We're looking at Bandura's self-efficacy. Um, this is not self-esteem. This is not global. It's not general confidence. It's your specific belief about your ability to, to do a certain task to a level that will gain you a set reward. Do I want that reward? Is also part of the evaluation of self-efficacy is not just about my own judgment about my ability. It's a lot more complex than that. So we're actually measuring this in our learning game project. I just want to show you a really interesting piece of research um, from Liz McDowell. She looks at approach to studying in relation to self-efficacy. And I just want to show you this because it shows some of the complexity of the, the engagement as, as I'm trying to look at it. It's incredibly complex. So she's looking at the student's response to feedback. So Gordon has a surface approach and low self-efficacy in the task that he's getting feedback on. So this is how he, and he goes through that task. He starts work early. He enjoys finding out about it. He's reading lots. He has a hard time writing. And then it kind of goes a little bit downhill here. And he starts to then not engage with the feedback because he's fearful of that feedback. Now this part here, imagine you're watching this student. You're watching the student's behaviour. For me, this is really interesting because this student looks engaged on the surface of it. And this is why we've got to be really, really careful about engagement data. Then we've got Carla. She's got a deep approach, which is what we say we're trying to achieve in higher education. Um, and she's got high self-efficacy. She's thinking about what she already knows. How can she link it? She's starting to write straight away. She's talking to her friends. But she's talking to her friends actually privately. She's making connections. These behaviours are incredibly good learning. It's what we say we want to achieve in higher education. But could we see that? Could we measure that? Now, some of the new tools that are coming in might tap into some of that interconnection with other people. But as a lecturer, when we make judgments about students, I'm not necessarily even going to see any of this behaviour. It's not obvious. We can't take a superficial judgment about what engagement is. Um, she's actually going to... She's going to find it quite hard to pull all of her ideas together um, and things might start to go badly wrong for her. Now, I've got some data, some qualitative data from another study that I'm writing up. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit in a minute about how this stage, this engaged, deep learning student with high self-efficacy, I want to show you how an implicit theory um, 
which implicit theory you have could make this a very, very fragile state that we influence um, and we can actually protect with some knowledge of some theory. Pia's got a surface approach with high self-efficacy. She plans her work really, really carefully. She gets all the, the resources. She writes, she rewrites. Again, this, this is a really engaged-looking student, right? But do we want a surface approach? What I'm trying to say here is the behaviours we see on the surface might look like engagement, but they're not necessarily the transformational learning that we want to create in higher education. And then we all would see Martin from the outside. We'd all understand that Martin is a disengaged student. He has the A motivation. What do I have to do? So can you just tell me, Camille, what do I have to do to do well today? You know, that kind of attitude. Hopes they're set reading so they don't have to think for themselves. Um, we'll do the bare minimum. We'll really carefully calculate the amount of time they have to spend to get the bare minimum pass mark that they have to. Um, so we will probably all recognise him as disengaged. But my question is, who in there is engaged? Because on the surface of it, some of them look very engaged, but they're not actually learning in the way that we would want them to be learning in higher education or the way that we say we're encouraging learning in higher education. And where might it go wrong, even where we've got Carla that's got this wonderful engagement and this very deep approach? Well, in the data that I got, we found that students with a very, very deep approach came unstuck. And they came unstuck because they, they were so passionate. They, so we give them a choice of essays, let's say. They pick the essay that is really, really interesting. I really want to understand that. They read massively. They, they do tons and tons and tons of reading. But without the skills to turn that reading into a good structure, a good argument, they end up getting a poor mark. The feedback doesn't help them to understand that. They are reading the feedback. And then they think, okay, and of course we've got all the work by Snyder and other researchers in the field that say you put an assessment against a, an assessment task that is also a learning task and you give it to a deep student and you don't give them the right feedback and you don't give them the right skills to be able to get through that assessment and you create a motivation. And our qualitative data showed this. So Carla starts saying, right, I'm going to have to use a different strategy here because I'm I'm enjoying the learning, but I'm not getting the marks. I'm going to have to stop, stop picking the essay. And this is what our students were doing in the data. Um, they stopped picking what they were interested in. They would actually say, I will now never pick an essay that interests me because it leads to a bad mark. Really, really sad. Um, so what I'm just trying to show is this is really complex. Student engagement is a really complex thing. As soon as you start looking at the symptoms, not just the outward behaviours. How can we make people like Carla more resilient? Well, we know theoretically that self-efficacy makes you very mastery-orientated. I will beat this. I will get better at this. And you go in with gusto. You go in as a learner. But self-efficacy is vulnerable because as soon as you start failing in tasks, you use that to reevaluate your self-efficacy. So what happens is a couple of failures, a couple of Carla bad marks, and we say, I'm not good at writing after all. So you then start going in with low self-efficacy. So what comes in then? Um, I've, what gives us resilience to keep going, to keep persisting, to keep being the mastery-oriented learner? And this then brings us to the work um, from America of Carol Dweck and Implicit Theories of Intelligence. This is not what do I believe about myself, it's what do I believe about the nature of intelligence. Um, or writing ability, or the ability to dance, or give an oral presentation. Okay, what do I believe about the nature of that ability? Do I believe 
that, and this is what we call in layman's terms a fixed mindset, do I believe that I was born this way and it really ain't going to change very much over my life? And I can tweak it a little bit, but it really isn't going to change very much because that's the way you are. Or do I believe that actually I might be born a certain way and certainly like me, I was born down there in some areas, let's say I was born down there in maths and some people were born up here, but actually we're all going to change, you know, it depends on what, we, what tasks we engage in, it depends what um, experiences we have, it depends what I throw myself into, it depends how I engage with my feedback and how I learn, but actually I am in control of whether I develop there. So which do we believe? Now, there are tons and tons and tons of papers in the US and now there are, there's tons of data coming out of the UK because this is what my research team have funded to look at in the UK because it's not been looked at in the UK before and we know that this is what happens to a child with a fixed mindset. They focus on performance. <coughs> Can I look good? Can I look like I'm a learner? Can I look like I should look? Okay, and that's where we see a very engaged learner. Then... Um, you might fail, you might trip up. And so then what you do, because this is about who I am, this is internalised in me, can't change very much. So what happens is you get a massive dip in self-esteem. And humans are driven to keep their self-esteem at a stable level. So I've got to find a way to feel better about myself. I can't, I can't live life with this very low self-esteem that's just been created by this failure. But I don't believe in development. I don't believe that I can change. So I've got to find some other way to raise my self-esteem level. Okay, Here's, this is how I repair my self-esteem. What we call dysfunctional strategies, not learning strategies. I look at the work of other people. So I look around the room and say, oh, Johnny did worse than me. Oh, I feel slightly better. Johnny did worse than me, that's okay. I devalue the task, and trust me, this is what I spent most of my educational years doing. I am not gonna have to do algebra when I'm an adult. <laughs> Okay, so you devalue the task, um, or I only do what I know I'm already good at. So, oh, I can do the quadratic equations, let me do those, because I can look like a performer. I'm doing great. We decrease efforts passively or actively, so procrastination or actually not going to lectures. Um, and this is what we call helpless orientation. This puts you on a negative downward spiral of attainment where by the time you get to the end of it, you can turn around and say, see, see, told you I was no good at that. But somebody with a growth mindset, they, they have a little dip in their self-esteem when they face failure, but they've got functional strategies to recover their self-esteem. They've got learning strategies to recover their self-esteem. Try again, try harder, try a different strategy, because they believe in the potential for development. And we know that this pattern happens. Numerous papers that show us that this pattern happens. Um, we've... We have now done this with nursery school children all the way through the ages right up to higher education. So we've just run our first study with higher education students. We're now going to try and use it because what we also know about this is that it degrades stereotype threat. Because if you, if you have a growth mindset, stereotype threat can't hurt you as badly because you can't believe that females aren't good at parking if you believe that everybody can develop. So it actually takes away the power of stereotype threats. So we're actually, you might be interested here, Camille, we're doing a study now to see if this closes the attainment gap between BME and white British students. So we're doing a mindset intervention with undergraduates um, in, the, in the middle of that at the moment. So, going back to that lovely, neat model of Arnold and Flamey's. This is how I might frame it. But we're not talking about 
that they, all of these factors are inter interrelating in a very, very complicated way. Um, the experience that we're talking about is a perceived experience, but it's not just a pe perceived experience, as um, Entwistle and Ramsden would say, it's a co-created experience, because actually the psychological factors, what happens to a student with a fixed mindset is if you, you give them a lovely, challenging opportunity, like a citizenship programme, they'll go, whoa, that's not for me, that's too scary, I might fail. But, a ch but a, a, an adult learner with um, a growth mindset is more likely to go, whoa, a learning opportunity, I might fail, I'll learn loads, and jump in. So the psychological factors actually mean that this experience is created by the student, not just perceived by the student. Um, we've got massive, massive complexity here. And what we're using are five key theories. We're also looking at employability, identity and capital. We're using five key theories to help us to understand the data that we get out. And we've designed tools very, very true to those theoretical underpinnings. Um, so what are we actually doing? Three year, three time points, um, longitudinal plus some cross-sectional. We're getting data from students before they come in so we can measure their, what they're like before they even get to us and then we're going to look at them how they move forward. We've got student records which has got all the demographic data that we need. We've got the kids' data so we're actually measuring what is on offer to them in a very basic way because the kids doesn't tell you all of that. We've developed, um, this, this is something we've developed with 5,000 school pupils and we've updated it and tested it with um, adult learners. It's the Learner Resilience Scale, which measures whether they are mastery or helpless oriented in their learning. Um, we've got a self-efficacy scale and then with the existing measures we're using, we're using Dweck's measure of implicit theories, we're using the UKES and we're using Entwistle and Ramsden's assist. But what we will end up is, we, is a mass of big data that measures the students from pre-entry all the way through then we will be able to use our theoretical underpinning, which has generated lots of theoretical hypotheses, to test against this big data. Um, that is it. Um, this is my project lead for the Learning Game project. This is me if you want to talk about any of the other projects um, that I've talked about today. All done. And I did it in time. I really didn't think I'd make it in time. <laughs>